Hello, my name's Ali Ansari and I'm Professor of Iranian History at the University of St Andrews. Today I'll be discussing Iranian foreign policy towards the Middle East and Syria in particular with my colleague Dr Jasmine Rani, who's talking to us down the line from St Andrews. Hello Jasmine. Hello, it's good to be here. I'll start with some background about Iranian foreign policy before turning to Iranian policy towards the region and Syria in particular in conversation with my colleague Jasmine. And finally, I'll round up with a brief assessment of that foreign policy for the future and its impact on domestic Iranian politics. First, some background. If you look at the nature of Iranian foreign policy, particularly since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, you'll see that a number of ideas have shaped it. On one level, you have to see Iran as a re-emerging great power. It sees itself as a historic power and a power that has certain obligations in the region. On the other hand, as we've witnessed in the post-revolutionary period and the Iran-Iraq war, which is one of the more defining moments of Iran's recent history, Iranians also have this sense of siege, this sense that they're under threat from a variety of foreign powers. And normally they tend to look at this as being directed by the United States. These two dynamics tend to shape its attitude to the region. So you can see, for example, post 9-11 and post the global war on terror, that Iran has extended its influence in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they've been able to argue that the extension of their influence in Iraq has been for their defence. It's a position that had a certain amount of sympathy, even among Western foreign policymakers who could understand that motivation. I think Syria, on the other hand, their extension of their influence in Syria reflects perhaps an attempt to establish influence in the wider Middle East region and that sense of themselves as a great power. Iran's foreign policy is shaped not only by its history, but of course by its environment. It sits across probably the two largest hydrocarbon reserves in the world, in the Caspian and of course in the Persian Gulf. This means that Iran, in the words of one American official, lies in some really prime real estate as far as the geopolitics of the world is concerned. And it explains in many ways why Western powers, as well as Russia, have been very interested in influence and control over the region. And of course, prior to 1979, Iran was much more aligned with the West. The last Shah, for example, had a very, very close relationship with the United States. And one of the curiosities of the Islamic Revolution is the way in which the United States itself sought to manage that transition from the monarchy to the revolutionary regime. One of the unknown aspects of this attempted transition was the fact that the United States, prior to the hostage crisis of November 1979, had given Iran warning of the fact that Saddam Hussein's Iraq was preparing a build-up and a possible attack on revolutionary Iran during the early months of 1980. Sadly, the Iranians decided to ignore that warning. And of course, as we know, in September 1980, Saddam Hussein invaded. There was a widespread belief among Iranian revolutionary circles and among the revolutionary elite that the West had encouraged and was certainly behind Saddam Hussein's decision to invade Iran in 1980. Following the end of the war in 1988, Iranian foreign policy was driven in many ways by a determination to prevent any form of attack of that nature happening again. And after 2003, when the United States removed Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq, the Iranians were determined to move in, to establish influence and to ensure, as one Iranian official said to me, that no military threat would ever emerge from Iraq again. After 1979, as a avowedly revolutionary power, Iran found itself in an antagonistic relationship with most of its Arab neighbours. The one exception to this rule was Syria. It maintained a fairly strong alliance with Syria throughout the Iran-Iraq war and in the aftermath. We're now going to discuss Iran's relations with Syria with my colleague Dr Jasmine Rani.
Jasmine, tell us a little bit about the relationship from a Syrian perspective. The relationship between Syria and Iran is actually one of the longest strategic alliances in the Middle East at the moment. And it's impossible to understand the strength of that relationship and why it's lasted for so long without taking into account when that alliance was formed in the 1970s and the regional context. For Syria, it's an Arab nationalist state and it positions itself in the region as being opposed to the United States and opposed to Israel. Those are the cornerstones of its Arab nationalist ideology in terms of its foreign policy. In the 1970s, its key partner in that Arab nationalist stance, Egypt, had in fact defected and signed a truce with Israel. That really sent shockwaves throughout the region. Syria found itself isolated. It was in actually the same year, 1979, when Egypt had signed a truce with Israel that the Iranian revolution occurred. Thank you, Jasmine. One of the interesting things that you're raising here is what unlikely partners they are. Here you have a secular Arab nationalist state in a strategic partnership with an Islamic republic with an avowedly Islamist agenda. So what you're saying is that actually the antagonism with the United States and Israel trumps everything else. Is that right? I would say that's an accurate way of defining it. It's not the Arabness of Mm. the Arab nationalist ideology that is the most important to Syria. Actually, if a state holds on to the principles of an anti-colonial stance, if you like, of opposing the United States and opposing what they believe is another imperialist power in the form of Israel in the region, then that would immediately bring them into their ideological sphere of influence. So for them, it is far more important that Iran shared those principles with Syria, rather than the fact that from a nationalist secular standpoint, they seemed to be the polar opposite. So we see that straight after the revolution, when Iran had shifted from what was under the Shah, very close ally to the United States and got on very well with Israel, that shift to Iran becoming an enemy in the region towards the United States, who they called the great devil and the great Satan. And Britain was seen as the little Satan. Once they had avowed this, Syria was actually the first country to call up Iran to congratulate them on the revolution. And during the Iranian hostage crisis, they were the only Arab state that openly came out in support of the Iranian regime. And again, during the Iran-Iraq war, They showed that their allegiance was with, as you said, the Islamic Republic of Iran in opposition to their, in fact, not just Arab partner in the region, but fellow Arab nationalist state, Iraq, a Ba'athist state. That is also very unusual, isn't it? Because, of course, Iraq and Syria were both nominally under Ba'athist regimes. And yet Syria there is basically breaking ranks and siding with Iran during this terrible war that lasted for eight years. That's correct. And again, it was identifying whom the United States was supporting in the region and opposing that state. So when Syria recognised that Iraq and the United States had formed a relationship in that war, then it actually felt as if it was a duty to oppose that imperialist influence in the region. But there was also a personal rivalry between Hafez al-Assad and Saddam Hussein. So that played into it as well. It also reminds us that some ideologies are more important than others. Yes. And in this case, the ideology, there is a a set of principles that guide it, but also it's the geopolitics. So Syria, it's a small state in comparison to Egypt, in comparison to Saudi Arabia with its wealth, even in comparison to Iran in terms of its population. 
And so it finds its role in the region through its ideology. It's able to mark this out as a niche through which it's projecting some kind of influence to make up for the fact that it doesn't have the economic or demographic power. Do you think since the Arab Spring of 2011 that that dynamic has shifted a little? If you look at the perspective from Iran, there's certainly a geopolitical dynamic in terms of protecting the Assad regime. But I detect an element where there's a much more Shia Sunni driver going on there and that the Iranians are pushing a line which is certainly a little bit more religious in its conception that perhaps the relationship has been up till now. Is there a sense in the Assad regime in Syria that perhaps the relationship is taking a slightly different colour? We can't overlook the sectarian dynamic. I would say that at the foundation of this relationship, it's geopolitical and ideological. But there is an overlap with sectarian rhetoric as well. The Syrian regime is an Alawi minority regime. That means it's representing about 10% of the population, whereas the majority of the population is Sunni Muslim. Now, Alawis do not affiliate with or identify with Shias, But because it's a minority regime, they are able to gain the support of other minorities in Syria. For example, Christians, Druze or Shia. So that's one element of it. The Assad regime has tried to make the case that they would defend the rights of minorities and that if they were to be toppled and you had a Sunni majority regime taking over, the rights of those minorities would be at threat. So... This has played into that sectarian narrative. On the other hand, we have to return to the geopolitical question. So the relationship between Syria and Iran was strengthened in the 1980s, not just because Syria supported Iran in the Iran-Iraq war, but also because you had the formation of Hezbollah Mm. during the Lebanese civil war in the early 80s. And Hezbollah had very, very close relationship with Iran, it being a Shia movement. Its core existence was to defeat Israel. And of course, right there in the middle between the two states, between Iran and Lebanon, you have Syria. And so Syria became the route through which Iran was able to channel its supplies to Hezbollah. And that was a very important supply line to retain, as well as the political support of the regime. So when the Syrian uprising and the subsequent conflict began, when Hezbollah got involved in the Syrian conflict, they overtly said it was because they wanted to protect the triangle of resistance with Lebanon, Syria and Iran against Israel. And they felt this was threatened. So there is a geopolitical angle to this as well, that Mm. for Iran to maintain the upper hand in that resistance against Israel, they need Syria to very much be in that nexus with them. The Iranians describe it as the axis of resistance. How do you think the Syrians see the future relationship. There are many people that assume that the Russians and the Iranians have now ensured that the Assad regime will survive. But in what way do you think the Assad regime will survive? What's the dynamic of power that's going to exist? And how do you think that relationship with Iran, and obviously to a lesser extent, if we look at the Russian influence in the region, do you think Assad has been, in a sense, diminished by this process? Has Iranian influence grown at his own expense? That's a very good point. Iranian influence certainly has grown in Syria and Assad has not really had much choice but to accept that because he's been very dependent on Iranian as well as, of course, Russian support. Initially, at the start of the conflict, 
Iran's support was very much technical assistance and aiding them with surveillance materials, especially from the experience they had with the Green Revolution in 2009 in Iran. That level of support grew to military personnel being stationed in Syria. There already had been prior to the conflict, but the numbers grew, especially from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Some have put the number in the thousands. Other experts like Jubin Gudazi have argued that it's just numbers in the hundreds. Mm. Nevertheless, that number has grown to the extent that Israel is now increasingly alarmed because they feel that whatever the outcome of the conflict will be, even if Assad was to remain, that Iran has actually been covertly building military bases in Syria, which of course means that they are very close to the Israeli-Syrian border. So that buffer, if you like, will no longer be there between Iran and Israel. So the influence has grown. Nevertheless, I think for Iran, Assad has also been a liability. And I'm not sure that Assad is indispensable for them. Syria, in its current form, where there's supposed to be a pluralism in different faiths and minority groups are able to practice their faith in Syria without threat, is something that Iran wants to protect. It also wants to preserve its sphere of influence in the region. But the sectarian narrative that has coursed throughout this conflict has undermined Iran's position in the region as well. Mm. So if we look after the 2006 Hezbollah-Israeli conflict, the level of popularity of Hezbollah, but also Iran, because of the support that it gave to Hezbollah throughout the Arab world, was very high. And we see a complete reversal of that because there is a sense that there is an attempt from Iran to spread a Shia sphere of influence in the region. So the fact that it supported Assad, who is deeply unpopular amongst the Sunni population in the Arab world, has also made Iran increasingly unpopular in a way that isn't necessarily inevitable. We shouldn't see mm. that as a given because there have been times in quite recent history in the region when Iran was very popular, even amongst the Sunni population in the Arab world. That's absolutely right. There are many people in Iran who are very unhappy with this extension of Iranian power in Syria, which they see, as you quite rightly say, as making their relationship with the rest of the Arab world more difficult to handle. One of the interesting things was that after the very prolonged nuclear negotiations that took place between Iran and the P5 plus one five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. When that came to a happy conclusion in July 2015, there was a lot of talk then that the next thing that would be sorted out would be Syria and then you get to a general peace and everyone would be happy. But actually what you saw immediately afterwards were that the Iranians actually increased their involvement along with the Russians in Syria. And an argument that's certainly come out of Arab capitals is that the nuclear agreement in some ways emboldened the Iranians. Do you see merit in that argument? It certainly seemed to give Iran a legitimacy that it didn't have before the agreement. It had already been growing and coming to that point with the Obama administration and the side of the United States, and the agreement really solidified that. So where you have under the Bush administration, for example, Iran was included in the axis of evil. It mm. was seen as the ultimate pariah. And under Obama, there was an attempt to bridge that breach. With the start of the Syrian conflict, but also with a complete breakdown in any kind of negotiation of the so-called peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, for Barack Obama, there was a sense that the 
one last area of progress that could be salvaged in the Middle East was over the Iranian nuclear deal. Mm. So a lot centered on that. And those I've spoken to who worked in the State Department, also argued that John Kerry, the Secretary of State, when he took over after Hillary Clinton, was very much a, a task-oriented person. For him, it was a case of being able to tick off a few boxes and say, well, this is what we've achieved. We have something to show, at least on paper. Mm. And when it became apparent that these other aspects of Middle East politics was something that the United States really had lost influence over, they pursued the Iranian nuclear deal because they recognized this is the one area they could actually achieve something. Mm. It then meant that through the Iranian nuclear deal, the United States hoped that perhaps by bringing Iran closer into the US's orbit of influence, they might be able to persuade the Iranian regime to loosen its support of Assad and to also be involved in some kind of future negotiations with the opposition. But as you suggested, this demonstrated to Iran that actually it had a green light to pursue its own agenda in the region. And since the United States' influence in Syria was already very low and Russia was filling that vacuum, Iran saw no need really to pursue an American agenda and charted its own path. But I wonder actually looking forward, Jasmine, how you see this relationship developing and whether you think that in some ways Iran has overreached itself. I think the direction of Iran's policy towards Syria depends to some extent on the policies of other states, chiefly the United States, especially with the Trump administration at the moment. It's very unpredictable. This is a president who came into power arguing that he'd be pursuing an isolationist stance in the Middle East, and he's done anything but that. Also, the other regional states and particularly Saudi Arabia and Turkey. So whereas before, Iran's role in the conflict had been condemned by Turkey and President Erdogan, we now see this year with the Astana talks in Kazakhstan, where Iran was invited to the fold. And the important role in the conflict, for better or worse, was recognized by Turkey to the extent that they are willing to see Iran as a future partner in some kind of a peace plan. So Turkey seems to have softened its stance towards Iran because there's a recognition that certainly Turkey has overreached when it comes to the Syrian conflict. So that makes Saudi Arabia the one state that really stands out as a key obstacle for Iran's influence, not just in Syria, but in the region. A lot of Saudi Arabia's policy towards the Syrian conflict is to some extent an attempt to obstruct Iranian policy and Iran's sphere of influence in the region. This has a sectarian flavor to it, but it's also very geopolitical. It's a straight up struggle for power, a regional power. So we need to wait and see how Saudi Arabia will position itself against Iran, against Iran's continued role in the Syrian conflict. I don't think Iran's entanglement is going to lessen. It seems that they're being legitimized more and more because there's a recognition that so many other powers have failed to have some kind of long-lasting influence or positive impact on the conflict. And since Assad doesn't seem to be going anywhere for now, his key allies are seen to be a conduit towards shaping the conflict. One of the curiosities of the conflict has been the way in which Saudi Arabia and a number of other Gulf states, their relationship with Israel has warmed. And what you're seeing, perhaps, is the growth of Iranian power is finally resulting in the development of a more durable Arab-Israeli peace. Do you think that this conflict is basically reshaping the fault lines in the Middle East? If we look at Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, their 
approach to Israel has always been quite pragmatic. They may put out the anti-Israeli rhetoric every now and again. Saudi Arabia wants to maintain this image of being one of the leaders of the Muslim world. So they want to keep on the right side of public opinion in that sense. Nevertheless, when it comes to trade agreements, even increased military understandings, Saudi Arabia and Israel have broadly been on the same page. They don't want to see a huge shift in the status quo. They don't want to see the region destabilized. And certainly Israel is better able to trust the conservative regimes and the monarchical regimes in the region than revolutionary regimes such as Iran or as Syria claims to be. So that relationship has been quite a long-standing one to some extent, if not overt. Interestingly, we see Egypt has also become a lot closer to Israel, openly opposed to Iran and any Islamist forces, of course, with the 2013 coup with Sisi. What that does do is it, I think, polarises the politics in the region a lot more. One of the paradoxes of Iranian policy has been this division between its defensive posture but also its determination to be a re-established great power. And these two pulls have basically contradicted themselves in terms of Iran's ambitions. So if you look at Rouhani's foreign policy, if you look at the policy of successive presidents in the Islamic Republic as well as prior to that in the pre-revolutionary period, one of the things that they've wanted to do really is to stabilise their respective regimes, to legitimise their respective regimes. And a lot of this has to do with economic growth and development. And yet the foreign policy, certainly of the Islamic Republic over the last 10 to 15 years, has actually in some ways diminished that possibility. If Iran wants to achieve economic growth, development, prosperity for its people, it needs stability. It needs stability in the region. It needs to be able to trade with its partners in the region. And at the moment, what we're seeing, actually, is that an ideology that is deeply, deeply antagonistic to the West, and in some ways conspiratorial in relation to the West, has meant that that urge to really build a stronger economy, a stronger society, a more stable political system, has been undermined by what we could describe as adventurism abroad. And that, for me, is one of the great tragedies of Iranian foreign policy at the moment. It's been intoxicated by this belief that it's become a regional power, but a regional power really on a temporary basis, a regional power that comes at a great cost. And that cost is that many of Rouhani's promises of bringing in investment, of bringing foreign direct investment with companies, is going to be undermined by the fact that many foreign companies are going to look at the region and see it still as inherently unstable. So this is something that I think future leaders in Iran are going to have to try and really seriously grapple with and reconcile as they move forward. Because ultimately, the stability of the system, the stability of the regime is going to depend on social, economic and political growth and not on its adventures abroad. It remains for me to thank my colleague, Dr. Jasmine Khani, for a very thought-provoking discussion on Iranian policy in Syria and for providing the Syrian perspective on this relationship. So thank you very much, Jasmine. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.